World War II was 25 years ago, but this week at opposite ends of the earth, some of its memories were revived. On Iwo Jima in the Pacific, the Japanese and the Americans got together and decided they were no longer enemies. On this episode of Here Tell, lost items and lost souls in search of redemption returned to an old battlefield. He knew every crest, every divot, every hole. 36 traumatic days on Iwo Jima had etched them in his mind forever. But this was new. Marty Connor had never seen Iwo from here, from the sky. My name is Andre Gallant. I'm the host of Here Tell, a podcast about true stories and how they get told. We're a project of the Low Residency MFA and Narrative Nonfiction Program, housed in the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. My guest today is Sam Bresnahan, a 2018 graduate of the MFA program. She's reading from an in-progress book project called In the Blood, Flowers Bloom, A Post-War Story of Forgiveness. The story follows veterans from both sides of the Pacific Front during World War II and how the keepsakes that soldiers took from enemies kept the battle alive long after the fighting stopped. Sam's story concerns the trauma of war, but is ultimately about the necessity of reconciliation and forgiveness, no matter how long that takes. For the past decade, Sam has worked at CNN in the International Features Unit, where she's currently a senior writer and copy editor. Before that, she went to Syracuse University, where she studied broadcast journalism and international affairs, sparking a love of global narratives. The switch from broadcast to long-form writing presented a challenge for Sam. There's always been a camera there. I haven't had to capture the details, frankly, of what it looks like, what it sounds like. Now you have to become the camera. Sam's going to read a chapter from her book called The Return. When her two main characters, Marty Connor and Teneza Wachi, first cross paths. And later, we talk deeply about reporting stories across decades and across cultures, and how the violence of war crosses generations. What's the story behind the title? So the title actually comes from a poem that was taken off of a body of a Japanese soldier during the Battle of Okinawa. And that's really at the heart of this story and this book is um, these souvenirs, so-called souvenirs or items that were taken from the battlefields in the Pacific during World War II by American uh, sailors, soldiers, Marines, brought back home with them and then eventually trying to return them to the families of the original owners, to these bereaved families of the soldiers that were killed in battle in Japan. The chapter you're going to read for us today... um revolves around a couple of characters. Tell me about who they are. Uh, the sample chapter that we're reading is will kind of come in the middle of the story, but the there are three main characters um, that are going to weave together to tell this story, and two of them show up in this, in this chapter, a pivotal moment in the lives of the American character in this, uh, Marty Connor, who is from Syracuse, New York, which is where I went to college and sort of how I found the story in certain ways, and, um, and Tunezo Wachi, who was a... Buddhist monk, Japanese Buddhist monk, who also fought in the war and converted to Buddhism to become a monk after the war ended over survivor's guilt. And it's Marty meeting um, the monk at this reunion in 1970 that plays a huge role and almost really changes a lot of the trajectory of Marty's life. So you said that Marty uh, lived in Syracuse. How did you come across this story? So I uh, was actually just kind of goofing around on the internet one day at work. Don't tell anybody. And um, I was on Syracuse.com, honestly, probably looking up uh, basketball scores. And it was Veterans Day. And there was this picture on the homepage of Syracuse.com, which is for the local paper there. And there was this gray-haired old guy holding a Japanese battle flag. So, you know, the red circle on the white fabric, these Japanese characters written in black ink all around it. It was a striking image. This guy, he looked so stoic, and immediately I was drawn to this picture of him and wanted to know more about the story. And so I 
read about it and kind of ran into my boss's office and said, I think there's a really incredible thing happening here and we should look into it. And it actually became a documentary for CNN International in 2011. And so that's how I got introduced to Marty and did his story. But I knew there was always a lot more I wanted to do with it. I couldn't let go of it. There was more on the Japanese side of things that I really wanted to dig into. And so it's been, you know, eight years now. And here we are being able to get a lot more into it than I could in, you know, a 30-minute documentary. So it's it's exciting. It's amazing how many stories, big stories, start by being struck by a photograph and wondering what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly, you know, my I have a deep interest in World War II and the Pacific, and, you know, my grandfather was a Pearl Harbor survivor. So here was this guy who reminded me very much of my grandfather, you know, holding, what is he doing with this? Japanese battle flag. And so it was um, it was really, really striking, and I just had to know more about it. So, As the granddaughter of a veteran, how did that impact how you wrote and reported this book? Mm. That has definitely been something I've tried to be self-aware of. You know, everyone comes to things with their own thoughts or biases or experiences, and you can't remove them completely, but I think it's important to at least be aware of them. And so I'd had my own thoughts about certain things like, you know, to be quite frank, the use of atomic bombs and to end the war and things like that. And I read a book um, in the course of this research called Nagasaki by Susan Susan Southard and actually had a conversation with her too um, afterwards. And because she was able to do kind of a lot of that as well, she wrote about survivors of the Um, the bombing at Nagasaki as an American person who had her own thoughts about that. And so I really wanted to speak with her about, you know, writing across difference. And, you know, we have generational gaps and gender gaps and uh, cultural differences and all kinds of barriers, if you will, to, um, to overcome or write around or be aware of. And so to really capture the essence, the mindset of what it was like to grow up in Japan during the post-war years, that's really important to one of the three characters here. So how can I capture that? Um, you know, this idea of partnering with your former enemy on both sides, you know, both for Teneza Wachi partnering with Marty and others and Marty partnering with his Japanese counterparts. You know, how do we get there and how did they arrive to that place? So it's dump- definitely been um, eye-opening and I also do think in some ways the passage of time is really beneficial in this case because in my life, all we've ever known with Japan is, you know, a good relationship really between the two countries. So I think it's kind of been it's been an interesting process um, and having to sort of with the Japanese uh, characters or interviewees that we've spoken to kind of explain where I'm coming from as well to kind of earn that trust because that's a big that's a big part of it. You're going to read chapter seven, which is called The Return. Set the stage for us. Where are you about to take us? So up until this point, we've been getting to know um, these three main characters and sort of these um, interwoven timelines. And in this chapter, two of the three main characters are going to come together for the first time. And so up until now, you know, we we get to know Marty, this young American. You know, he was only 18 when he fought at Iwo Jima. And so he's come home after the war. He's tried to kind of move on. With his life, he's got this collection of souvenirs that at first he thought he was going to show off all the time and then kind of just end up in little corners and in drawers and gathering dust um, in his home. You know, he meets his wife. He starts a family. He's running his own business. It's 25 years later after the war, and he hears about an opportunity to return to Iwo Jima. And there's a meeting he has there that really changes the course of everything for him. Um, And so it's a pretty pivotal point in the story. And now, here's Sam Bresnahan reading The Return from In the Blood, Flowers Bloom. crest, every divot, every hole. 36 traumatic days on Iwo Jima had etched them in his mind forever. But this was new. Marty Connor had never seen Iwo from here, from the sky. 
The plane swooped around Mount Suribachi, its silver wings tipping as if in salute. Marty pressed his camcorder to the window, the images imprinting on film just as they had on his brain two and a half decades ago. It was the 25th anniversary of the battle. This time, Marty's wife Janet was with him. He ran through a mental checklist of all the prominent spots to show her. The foxholes he'd dug in for the night, the places he'd dodged mortar fire, the exact location where he'd first stepped on the beach. It was now February 19, 1970. Not long before, the phone had rung at Marty's house on the hill in Syracuse. It was Charlie Early, a fellow 5th Marine Division veteran. There's a reunion happening on Iwo, he told Marty. Was he ready to return? 25 years earlier, Charles E. Early was an 18-year-old private in the 31st Replacement Battalion. On Iwo Jima, he was assigned to a rifle company, landing on D-Day Plus One, February 20th, 1945. Just shy of three weeks later, while engaged in a heavy firefight against the Japanese, Early was darting across an open area to get more stretchers for the wounded. A bullet from a Japanese sniper hit him in his right side, piercing his hip and abdomen. William Shadley, another brave Marine, ran into the open area and pulled Early to safety. Early would spend the next 16 months in naval hospitals from Guam to Bethesda. For 10 months, he lay in a body cast to relocate his hip. The injury would leave him with a permanent limp and ruin his dreams of a career in the Marines. But like Marty, Iwo was a constant presence in his life and the lives of his family. Early met his wife, Bonnie, while in recovery at Bethesda Naval Hospital. They had two children, Chuck and Mary. And though their father was badly wounded by the Japanese, to the point of not being able to tie his shoe or put a sock on his right foot, Early did not blame them. They were doing their job, and I was doing mine, his daughter Mary remembered him telling his children, who were never allowed to use derogatory terms like Jap in the house. Early credited his somewhat unusual empathy toward the Japanese to his acting commander, Lieutenant Kurt Tanner, who ordered his Marines not to mistreat any of the few Japanese prisoners they might take during the battle. The war was over for these men, and they should be treated like human beings, Early remembered Tanner saying. They had been our allies before the war and could be our friends again someday. Those words stuck with the young Early, and more than 20 years later, when the opportunity for a reunion with Japanese Iwo survivors presented itself, Early latched on. For three years, turning the opportunity into reality would become his greatest obsession. At 0500 on the morning of February 19, 1970, the Marines and their families gathered at Tachikawa Airport for the U.S. Air Force flight to Iwo Jima. Food packets were provided for the journey. The borrowed plane landed on one of the precious airstrips that first drew interest from the Allied Forces Command and therefore the Marines to this island in 1945. A delegation of Japanese veterans arrived in a silver military aircraft of their own. Janet held the video camera as Marty stepped onto the black beach, surrounded by brilliant blue waves swallowed by the sand at water's edge. Marty looked like a Kennedy in a dark suit, crisp white shirt with a thin black tie, caramel hair tousled by the wind. He knelt and clutched a fistful of sand. The black granules filtered through his fingers and dispersed in the breeze. When Marty had first been here, when he first saw this beach, it was littered with bodies, dead and dying, with blood and bullets, with chaos. Only a teenager, he couldn't picture himself walking off the island alive. Now he had returned as a man, as a husband, as a father. Janet watched him through the viewfinder. She was doing her best Jackie O in a chic black dress and white headscarf. She now stood on the same beach Marty had first landed on all those years ago, in this place that had played such a pivotal role in shaping the man she loved. It was here that Marty, only 18 years old, had seen his first dead bodies. Two American Marines slumped in a crater in the sand, formed by a shell explosion. Both had bled out, their bodies the ashen gray of death. It was the place he first thought to himself, Connor, what the hell are you doing here? There was a smattering of American and Japanese media present to cover the event, including NBC News international correspondent John Rich. Rich himself had fought at Iwo Jima as a member of the 4th Marine Division, and he learned to speak Japanese at the Navy Language School, perfecting it with a posting in Tokyo after the war as a correspondent for the International News Service. 
On this day, he helped serve as a translator between the American and Japanese veterans. Rich listened as a Japanese survivor of Iwo spoke to an American vet. He said, He thanks the Americans very much for taking care of him when he came out, Rich translated. The American man nodded and replied, After animosity toward the Japanese, I have nothing but admiration for your people, and especially the defenders of Iwo Jima. It didn't take long before the former enemies began reliving the battle using maps. Charles Early had his family with him, including his son Chuck and 11-year-old daughter Mary. They posed for photographs, snapping one in front of the base operations building. Iwo Jima Air Base, field elevation 353 feet, in bold black letters, both in English and Japanese, on the white sign behind them. Some of the Americans and their families wandered the island, picking up shrapnel fragments as souvenirs or bottling up bits of black sand. Others, like Marty, revisited some of the prominent locations from their time fighting on the island. John Rich observed, The long black landing beach looked as treacherous as ever. Its shifting volcanic sands long ago swallowed up the debris of battle. Atop Mount Suribachi, there's an American memorial where the famous flag-raising took place. Other than these unmistakable landmarks, however, the island itself seems strangely changed. The Americans had returned Iwo Jima back to Japan two years earlier. And where it had been barren and windy during the battle itself, there was now vegetation covering much of the island. Still, many of the unmistakable elements of Iwo remained beneath the fresh ground covering. Suribachi still loomed like a giant, casting its shadow over the island's pork chop shape. It was important to Marty that Janet experience this with him. This was not just a reunion for the Marines. The delegation of three dozen American veterans and some of their wives and children were here to meet Japanese veterans, some of the few who survived the invasion. The meeting would take place on the summit of Suribachi itself, the 554-foot extinct volcano at the southwest end of the island. It was the spot of Joe Rosenthal's famous flag-raising photograph for the Associated Press that would become a seminal image of the war, and later be memorialized in bronze as the Marine Corps War Memorial in Arlington, Virginia. As the visiting party made their way up the mountain, Janet looked back down toward the water. She could not imagine how Marty made it through. The Japanese guns were pointed directly down on that beach. On top of Mount Suribachi, a line of Japanese veterans stood waiting. Marty and his fellow Marines, the victors of this tiny island, walked down the line, shaking hands one by one with the very men they once fought against. With each greeting, Marty and the others bowed their heads in respect. They were taller than their Japanese counterparts, and they struck imposing figures, but Marty never felt any animosity that day. It was a time for reflection and appreciation. They suffered and we suffered, Marty thought. We aren't that different in the end. Janet captured it all on film, and afterwards, her video camera caught Marty taking photos of the beaches below. A little Japanese boy in a red jumper stood behind him, curious about this American stranger with the caramel hair. Janet smiled at the young Japanese women toting babies. She could relate. Like Marty, she thought the similarities were striking. We aren't that different in the end. Of everyone they saw that day, a man in black caught their eye. This Buddhist monk stood out from the crowd, tall and thin and bald, his robes trailing behind him in the wind. He carried a large brown hat that came to a point, held in front of him like a shield. At a lunch in Tokyo after the ceremony, Marty spoke to the monk. In perfect English, Tunezo Washi told Marty that he had been returning personal items recovered from the battlefield to families of dead Japanese soldiers. One of the Marines at the reunion brought some souvenirs he'd taken during the war. The monk tracked down the family, and Marty watched as the soldier's tearful parents gratefully met the Marine at the airport. The family had traveled nearly a full day by train to make it in time. Immediately, Marty thought of his own souvenirs, the diary and pay records, the photographs and letters, collecting dust in his drawer at home. Twenty-five years ago, he had taken them from the bodies of Japanese soldiers as so many Marines, soldiers, and sailors had, often only moments after death. They were tokens, prizes, evidence that Marty had been to this place, fought this battle, survived. Now he saw them in a different light. He witnessed, there in front of him, the impact these sometimes seemingly trivial artifacts could have. 
It was spiritual, Washi explained. Most of the Japanese families had no body to bury. Many of them never even knew when and where their loved ones had died. But these personal belongings could be offered to the family altar, and at long last, the lost souls would be at peace. In the tradition of Buddhist Japan, familial ancestors are remembered with their rightful place at the family altar, known as the Butsudan. The Butsudan is a wooden unit, often as small as a cabinet, but occasionally as large as a wardrobe, with doors to shield the spiritual offerings held inside, candles, incense, flowers, and representations of Buddhist divinities, depending on the family's sect affiliation. Daily offerings are often made at the Butsudan as both a continuation of worship from the local Buddhist temple and to interact with the ancestors. It was for the deceased that an article representing them in life was most crucial in their afterlife, and it was here that Washi was trying to help. Any item would do. Japanese flags were plentiful, of course, but they were only one piece in a complicated, deeply spiritual assortment designed to shield the Japanese soldier in battle. There were also senenbari, or thousand-stitch belts, believed to offer protection from enemy fire. The cream-colored strips of cloth were embroidered with a thousand small stitches, thought to be done by a different person in the soldier's community. It provided a link to home, worn under the uniform close to the skin. Many soldiers also kept photos of their loved ones in helmets or uniform pockets, just as the Americans did, though they took them just the same. Handwritten diaries, postcards, and bits of clothing and uniforms had also been popular souvenirs pocketed by the enemy. Personal items like these, which could be traced back to a family or at least a certain place within Japan, were most important. Generic items like money, which had no discernible identification, rarely served any purpose. Marty knew he had items that could likely be identified, and therefore linked to a deceased soldier and his family. He bid Wachi goodbye and boarded a plane with Janet, and with a sense of purpose. He knew exactly what to do. That night, back home in America, NBC News ran a special report during the evening news, filed by correspondent John Rich. Anchor David Brinkley, wearing a light gray suit, returned from a commercial break and told his viewers, World War II was 25 years ago. This week, at opposite ends of the earth, some of its memories were revived. Yesterday, in Munich, Germany, a funeral for seven elderly Jews killed in a fire at their community center. On Iwo Jima in the Pacific, the Japanese and the Americans got together and decided they were no longer enemies. The footage began to show several of the same scenes Marty and Janet had captured on their own video camera. On Mount Suribachi, men in crisp white uniforms hoisted two flags up poles side by side. The red, white, and blue stars and stripes snapped in the breeze next to the red circle on white fabric, the wind moving the two in the same direction, together. After spending some time in Tokyo and Hong Kong for the remainder of the reunion trip, Marty and Janet returned home to Syracuse. For the first time in a long time, Marty considered his own souvenirs. They meant little to him now, and whatever need he'd felt after the war to keep these items, show them off and prove he'd been there, seemed to have melted away. He made up his mind and started with the pay records. They were official documents, likely to contain the name of the original owner. On a plain white sheet of paper, he typed out a letter dated March 24, 1970. Dear Mr. Wachi, I have enclosed items obtained by me while on Iwo Jima in February and March 1945. All were found on the northern end of Iwo Jima during the last days of fighting. I sincerely hope they will bring comfort to the relatives and families of the deceased. My wife and myself wish to thank you and the other members of your group for the hospitality shown us during our visit to your country. Very truly yours, Martin C. Connor. Marty placed the letter and fragile pay records in a brown envelope and wrote the monk's address on the front. He sent it from the post office, and then he waited. Would Wachi find the owner? Was the bereaved family still alive? Would Marty... Hear back from him? A month later, a white envelope arrived in Marty's mailbox. A single sheet of thin, tri-folded paper lay tucked inside. It was typed with a smooth handwritten signature, penned at the bottom, and dated April 29, 1970. Dear Mr. Martin C. Connor, It took about three weeks to find out the proper bereaved family of the war dead who was described in your letter. 
The family is living in a town named Takahara in the prefecture of Kyushu. As the name and the native town of the war dead were written in a deposit passbook among the items which were enclosed in your letter, I could contact the town office asking to find out the bereaved family and its address. And I could deliver the items to them through the town office and also inform the circumstances when you found them on the western side of Iwo Jima near the Sulphur Quarry about February 26, 1945. According to the town office, the grandmother of the war dead among the family is still alive with the age of 103 years and who is the oldest person in the prefecture. The delight and gratitude of the family were quite beyond description. Now they could not only recover those items, but also learn the true date and spot of the war dead by your kind letter. They are wishing to know as much as possible in detail the circumstances in which you obtained the items from the war dead. By the small pictures of yourself and your wife, I could recall you well, especially I remember well the Mrs. face through the glass window at the Haneda airport when I saw you off in the last night. Anyhow, the reunion on Iwo Jima of this time was quite significant, and I think your letter shows its actual proof. Yours very sincerely, Tunezo Wachi, President, Association of Iwo Jima. Marty was pleased to know he had helped these families in some small way. With a focused determination, he unearthed more souvenirs to send. Take a good look in their eyes Take a good look in their eyes Take a good look in the eyes of somebody Thanks for sharing your story with us, Sam. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for listening. If you can, without giving away the plot, what happens to these men after this little portion ends? So this meeting, you know, Marty meeting, watching and seeing him return something to a family that one of the other Marines had brought with him and sort of having this this moment of revelation for his own souvenirs, Marty starts sending these things back and pretty soon also starts spreading the message to his fellow Marines, who still play a huge uh, role in his life. And, you know, there's a lot of reunions that they have in the U.S., and um, he has a lot of Marine buddies and things. And so he sort of starts spreading the word throughout the veteran community. And suddenly other items start showing up to Marty's doorstep that people had taken. And Marty sort of becomes this, um, you know, intermediary, and he starts sending other people's souvenirs back to Japan. And it sort of opens up this channel of communication and of, um, you know, of all these items returning back home to these families. And he proceeds to do that for the next 40 plus years, which is pretty amazing. Do the souvenirs themselves, the objects, do they become characters? They really do. And I think you know, each one is representative of a life, of both the person who it originally belonged to and then the person who took it. And over time comes to represent different things. And I think that's why, while not everyone agreed, especially in the veteran community, with what Marty was doing or this idea that, you know, we should try to help provide closure to the families of former enemies, a lot of people did agree with that. And it was quite easy for Marty to get a lot of souvenirs to send back. And so I think that says a lot about the transformation that people can go through when you've been in something as horrific as war. And the souvenirs are sort of representative of that, you know, where they were in their life that they felt compelled to take these items, you know, which is really kind of, it's um, it's quite ghoulish, you know, and to take something off of someone that either you yourself killed or you've come across who's just died and to reach down and take something from them, you know, why would you want that? It's a really, the psychology behind that is is quite interesting. And then what are you going to do with it once you come back and why hold on to it? So I think they have, um, you know, some are quite literally covered in blood, like there'll be blood stains on some of these flags. And so, you know, it's a very obvious reminder of the circumstances in which these items were taken. In fact, one of the most frightening and intense things that ever showed up to Marty's doorstep was a human skull, which, I mean, that's in itself is, is 
really terrible. And, you know, someone took that. And that is the ultimate representation of dignity lost and, um, you know, under these horrible circumstances of battle. And so I think each of these different items, you know, it was a lot of flags. It was personal photographs. Like, what are you going to do with a picture of a stranger? Like, why? You know, and so realizing that these have so much more importance and meaning to the family of your former enemy and arriving in this place where you say, you know what, it's time for these to return home, I think is a is an important message and um, process, you know, to, to arrive at. Were you able to figure out or come to terms with why men, soldiers on, on both sides of this fight took these souvenirs? That was definitely... A big question I ask Marty a lot, you know, in, in different ways. And he's probably like, why are you asking me the same thing over and over again? And because he was very kind of casual about it. And actually a lot of them were. And they just said, you know, everyone, it was a little bit of like a lot of people were doing this. And this strange sort of, you know, they were kids in these unbelievable circumstances, seeing things that no one should have to see. And none of it really made any sense in a lot of ways, you know, what they were having to do. Um, or what was being done to them. And so I think there was a bit of this this fascination, and in the moment they just would reach down and take this, you know, kind of exotic-looking flag and things like, you know, we've heard about this in Germany as well, like people having Nazi memorabilia or taking the guns off of, um, you know, dead Nazis and things like that. So it's not um, specific just to the Pacific battlefields. So I think that was something just really trying to get at the heart of why. And no one's really provided a great answer other than it was just something we did in the moment. And they almost, with a passing of time, can't really explain even, I think, why they did it. And I think in a little bit, too, they're kind of like, I don't know why I did this. And it's part of why they want to send it back, you know. To to stay on the topic of, of, of gruesome things, what's it like writing about war? I mean, even though you aren't acting as a correspondent here in in the in the hot zone i i'd imagine that there's still um uh, a, a difficulty in writing about violence no matter how old it is mm-hmm. yeah that's that was definitely um you know and part of the research and to because you needed to immerse i need to immerse myself in what that was like in order to understand why it was also such a big deal for these men to then turn around and say okay well we participated in one of the worst in the bloodiest battle of the Pacific. And now we want to turn around and, you know, provide some comfort to the families of these men we fought against. And so that was really important. Um, and I think I really wanted to get that across as well, like a lot of the gruesome aspects of Iwo Jima. And thankfully, it's one of the most well-documented battles, both from a video perspective. There are a lot of books about it, a lot of, you know, even movies. And um, so there was a lot of research, probably almost too much. <laughs> and... So just really trying to get a feel for what it was like as much as possible without having been there. And then to hear Marty's personal experience. And then also to look at it from the Japanese side as well. You know, this complex network of tunnels that were underground and the way that the the fighting was very close range, which made it even more personal and intimate, which made the souvenir taking even more. You know, so there's just like all these elements and aspects of that battle you know, they were on this small island for more than a month engaged in this close hand-to-hand combat and in a fight to the death. And so it was really, um, it was quite intense to research a lot of that. There were a lot of gruesome things that happened and that Marty experienced and that he witnessed and had to participate in himself. Um, they were all quite young on both sides, especially on the Japanese side. Some were certainly younger than Marty, even at 18. And so I think it's important, too, though, to understand that, to see why this transformation is as important and big as it is. What kind of qualifications did you place on on the, the facts, like what to include, what, what not to include? What was your decision-making process like? That's a great question because there's so much, so many. And I, so I think a lot of it was what were some of these anecdotes from Marty that were most memorable to me, for instance, because we've talked about this. I've talked about this with him, you know, for years. And so one of my measuring sticks was if I was going to sit down and, you know, tell my husband what we'd mentioned, talked about in the interview or one of my friends, like what were the things that were 
coming to my mind straight away that I found most memorable and interesting. And in theory, maybe that's what other people would find interesting too. So that was a little bit of a, of a barometer. Tell me about um, the depth of research that you had to do to, you know, capture a story, you know, that happened so long ago. That is, um, well, it's still ongoing, <laughs> first of all. And so that is, uh, it's also always hard to know when to stop researching. And when there's something like this that's so well documented. I mean, the ironic part of this is it's not really about Iwo Jima. It's pretty much the first chapter and then that's it. And so I spent a lot of time researching the battle. And of course it was important and the pivotal moment in Marty's life. You know, these 30-something days that he spends on this island as an 18-year-old literally shapes the entire rest of his of his life, you know, thinks about it constantly, impacts his family. There's a map of Iwo Jima hanging in the living room. I mean, it's this looms so large for him. And so it's an important part of the story, of course, but at the end of the day, in terms of this particular narrative is one chapter out of, you know, however many this will turn out to be, 11 or 12 at least. And so knowing when to stop researching, <laughs> or at least start writing during the research is certainly always a challenge. And I think, um, you know, did a lot of watching of old videos, and Marty himself took old videos, but even not just the battle in terms of his relationship with his wife, for instance. We sat in the basement, and we watched some of their old home videos from when they first got married. And one of them was from their honeymoon, and he made poor Janet go to Gettysburg National Park. <laughs> like, this guy just is so interested in the military and military history. And Janet, who's sort of this rock for him and has played that role all of her life, is kind of this silent supporter and allows him to, you know, do these things on the side and quietly return these souvenirs and helped, you know, would like type up the emails because he doesn't really like using the computer and that kind of thing. You know, and that home video of them at Gettysburg told me a lot about who they both are and also the fact that they went on their honeymoon to Gettysburg. I don't think where did you go on your honeymoon would have been one of my first questions, but now for certain, like going forward, it definitely will be because it was so illuminating, but just to watch those, you know, and to watch them watch those videos as well. So that was a great experience and, you know, kind of reliving some of those moments. And it was very um, illuminating, <laughs> like those little parts of their stories. Right. And your, your, your process also involved going to Japan. Mm -hmm. um, what did you get out of that trip? So that was a really, um, that was an amazing experience. I had never been to Japan. It was always really high on my list personally to visit. And of course, um, you know, my own personal family history. My grandfather, in addition to Pearl Harbor, was also at Okinawa. And so we were, I went there to meet with, um, with Wachi's daughter, Rosa. She's in her late 80s, but she's still alive. And her daughter, Sophie, so Wachi's granddaughter, um, the Buddhist monk that Marty met in 1970 and then worked with all those years. And so that was an incredible experience. And I'd spoken to her a few times on the phone. Um, she's, Rosa speaks English very well, so she's one of the few people I haven't had a translation barrier with, which is really nice. And so, you know, we went to her home and met with her. She had, you know, we walk in the door and she has stacks of documents and books and all of these things from her father's life. It was just, you know, as a writer and a researcher, like a gold mine. <laughs> and so we, you know, went through all these old photos and things that her dad had written and, um, you know, her memories of the war when it ended. She was um, in her teens and, you know, she's expecting her dad the sailor to come home in military uniform and on the way home from his posting in the war, he stops in Kyoto and becomes a monk. So he shows up in Buddhist robes, not in a military uniform. And for her, that was such a striking memory. And so to talk through that um, was really interesting. And then we found out which temple it was that he stopped at in Kyoto. I went there to see what that was like. And then the big experience of going to Okinawa and visiting some of the caves because the third character um, in the book, Shiakawa, eventually all three of these stories intertwine. And Shiakawa was just a baby when the war started. His father was killed at Okinawa. He becomes obsessed with trying to find the remains of his dad. The Okinawa experience was quite intense. And to see those caves where there are, you know, skeletons basically propped where they fell, you know, and preserved 
over time. It's been more than 70 years. And that was just really powerful and drove, I think it was really important as well and something that just gives you a lot of perspective as as I'm trying to write the story from both the American and Japanese perspective. Um, so that was quite a big moment for sure. Yeah. So your research includes, you know, footage, news footage, newsreels, home movies, uh, military records, all sorts of documents, personal interviews. How does all of that become narrative? All of those pieces fill in to tell the wider story. And, you know, sort of the fun of this big puzzle of how the pieces all fit together. And trying to make meaning from these different things, like the honeymoon video at Gettysburg. You know, what does that say about Marty and Janet, their relationship and things like that? You know, where does that fit into the story here of how Janet supported Marty and in a lot of ways allowed him to do this work for a long time? And so that was... um, you know, those things also really help inform the interviews as well. And being able to ask and point to specific photos and videos or documents in the interviews has been helpful to help jog the memory. I mean, we're talking about things that happened quite a long time ago, but at the same time, they were really traumatic in a lot of ways. And so Marty's memory is incredibly strong, especially when it comes to the battle. Interestingly, when it comes to returning the souvenirs, because he views it so almost casually, because he just genuinely thinks this is the right thing to do, it's been harder to actually put some of those pieces together because the details for him and his memory aren't as strong. Um, Because to him, this is just what, as a good human being, what we should be doing. Whereas, you know, we kind of look at it as this really incredible thing, and he's very humble about it. And you know, he didn't tell a lot of other people. His kids didn't know that he was doing this for the longest time. And so it's been interesting in terms of trying to pull out some more of those details. It's been a little bit more challenging. But to put all those pieces together, um, like I said, it's like a big puzzle. And that's the fun of it, but also the challenge. And, um, you know, what to leave in and what to leave out. Well, speaking of, of what to leave in and what to leave out, when you're your topic is is something that's such a huge part of our public memory and and has such a, a a large role in you know our storytelling in entertainment storytelling does that affect how you have to contextualize everything um, are there times where you feel like you have to you know uh, over inform or are you allowed to under inform that's a great question I think you know, when you say, oh, I'm working on this story about World War II, there's one of two reactions. One is, oh, that's great. I love everything World War II. And the other is kind of, oh, well, what could possibly be new or different about that? And that was something that I had to grapple with And what does make this story different. And then while it relates to World War II, like we said, it's not actually really about it. It's about everything that happens next and what happens to not only those who fight in the war, but their families that are left behind. Or even if you survive your families that you may start and have as you move through life. And so it's actually more about the 40 years after World War II than it really is about World War II. And so I think keeping that in mind, like the heart of the story and what makes it unique is it's about forgiveness and the impact of war and everything that happens afterwards that makes it a unique and more untold story, you know, at least an angle of it that we haven't really explored that much before. I mean, at the heart of this story are these men who experienced a great trauma and committed, you know, sins during that trauma that they're trying to reconcile later. How did you go about reporting out those revelations, those epiphanies that they have? How did you get to to those, that, those, the core emotions, the core change that they experienced? How did you arrive at that point? It was something I struggled with, frankly, especially with Marty, because, again, he's so sort of nonchalant about this. And I was like, Marty, I don't, like, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand how you went from, you know, fighting for your life and trying to kill these people to less than three decades later being like, absolutely, 100%, no question. I want to send stuff back and try to help them. Like, what was the turning point for you? Was there a moment? Like, there has to be a moment, you know, give me something. 
He's like, no, I mean, it was the right thing to do. And it was just like over and over and over again. I'm like, Marty, please. And, um, you know, just trying to get that out. It was like I was fighting for something that wasn't there. But when, in fact, it took me a little bit to realize that it was there all along. That is the kind of person he is. And the unnatural thing in his story is not that he's trying to help those families. For Marty, the unnatural thing was the war itself. So he was always in this place of wanting to help others. And, you know, he's a very um, deeply spiritual and faithful man, goes to church still every week, you know, in his almost mid-90s and things like that. And so his faith was a huge part of his upbringing and a huge part of his life. And so it was almost like he just needed a different outlet as a way to help and, again, also kind of reconcile with things that he had done and seen, you know, during his time in, in the military. And so I think a big revelation for me was that, yeah, he was always in this place. He just needed that facilitator. And then when he met Wachi in 1970, it provided that that outlet for him. And how did the um, Japanese corollary to that, that uh, transformation, what was that like? So that was something from reading. So Wachi passed away in 1989. So unfortunately, I've never you know been able to meet him and speak with him. So talking to his daughter who helped continue his work after he passed has been a huge way of trying to get into his own psyche. But he was a prolific writer himself. And there have been stories about him. He was a big figure in post-war times and, you know, the president of the Iwo Jima Association and really trying to make waves and headlines, um, you know, in those post-war years, but also had a really interesting military history personally. And in fact, he was a spy and spent a little bit of time in jail with the American occupation forces in post-war Japan. So he's got a fascinating backstory, and he dealt with a lot of survivor's guilt. And so that was his motivation for doing this kind of work, sometimes at the expense almost of his own family, you know, using personal funds, always being on the road. He really threw himself into that because of his guilt and trying to help others so much. I think in some ways his own family might have suffered a little bit, you know, just him not being around as much and things. And so getting at his motivation, I think it was really, it was a true survivor's guilt. You know, Marty's motivation of wanting to help and then for Shiakawa, it was always motivated personally by finding his father. And so that was they're very personal for all three guys, but in you know slightly different ways. And for Shiakawa, he ends up meeting Marty through sort of this twist of fate in the 90s. And um, Marty plays a role for Shiakawa that Washi kind of played for Marty in 1970, and that Shiakawa had a lot of hard feelings toward the Americans. But then, you know, he met he meets this guy at the Syracuse airport <laughs> and he realizes again, you know, we're not, we're not that different in the end. And so that's kind of that, that key theme that repeats itself throughout the story. What did you think about that, that revelation that a number of characters in, in the, in the story, they give you that we're not that different from them as, as, as someone who's sitting here in 2019, what are those, what does that idea mean to you? I think in the current climate where we are, both in this country and globally, it's taken on an even deeper level than honestly I probably even imagined when I started this project. And it's a reminder that I think we all need to carry with us. And there's a lot of lessons that we can learn and, you know, why that image was originally as striking as it was when I saw that picture of Marty for the first time, you know, all the way back in 2010 holding that flag, like what's happening here and how do we get to this point? Anecdotally, I've heard the children of veterans describe, you know, usually their fathers as men who came home from the war, who, you know, did their job and didn't talk about it. They were stoic. They didn't open up. Did that in any way affect your 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 interviewing? So that was actually, you know, that describes my grandfather quite well in a lot of ways. And in fact, it wasn't until... I was in high school and doing a research project on um, World War II for class. And I said, well, I know my grandfather's a Pearl Harbor survivor, but to be honest, we haven't talked about it that much. And I don't really know why. And so I finally just went and asked him about it. And he was totally fine with talking about it, but he wasn't going to offer it up. Like you needed to kind of ask him directly. And then it opened the floodgates and suddenly, you know, the Purple Heart that he had earned was now in a frame on the wall. And it was, you know, it was sort of a really interesting experience. And 
Marty was not like that. He is not like that still to this day. And I think he's also unique in that situ- in that in that way. Um he would have a lot of his Marine buddies over to the house in Syracuse and they would sit around the table and share old war stories and he would talk to his kids about it and you know, it was sort of the background chatter of their childhoods. You know, they really grew up in a place where this was not pushed to the side. And so I think that was really helpful and that there weren't too many barriers to have to try to to get through in terms of getting him to open up about what the experience was like. Um, like I said, ironically, it was almost harder to get him to talk about returning the souvenirs because he's so humble about it, <laughs> even though that's really the bulk. I mean, that is the story, you know. Um, but he... And, you know, it's been a long time. I think there's a lot of reflection. You know, he had nightmares that sort of began to dissipate once he started returning the souvenirs, which I think is very telling um, just on the subconscious level for him. And so I think um, he, him being very open about it was helpful both from the interviewing standpoint but also for him to be that person to send the souvenirs back. It was never something that he sort of pushed to the side. So much of the book involves a culture that is not your own. Um, you grew up in Pittsburgh. Your characters are, are you know, live their whole lives in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your approach to to writing across difference? Of course, you know, throw yourself into the research, right? It's kind of a starting point and trying to understand what it was like in post-war Japan. So what kind of mindset might Shiakawa have had as a young child who had just lost his dad in the war? And what was the attitudes like towards the Americans? Because that plays an important role for him and also in terms of how he views Marty and, you know, going through that later on in his life. And so I really tried to kind of approach that and understand it as I would, you know, anything that you don't really know too much about. And But at the same time, just need to talk to people as well. And that's where, you know, really getting to know Rosa over, uh, Wachi's daughter over a lot of conversations and, also telling her, you know, she was really interested in my background. She had the same question. You know, why is this 30-something-year-old white girl from Western PA <laughs> so interested in these old guys <laughs> from Japan and upstate New York? You know, I mean, how did we get here? And that's a very valid question. And so being open with her, too, about my own story and my own background and my interest in the subject and also why I think it is so important and powerful. And kind of coming to terms and helping us understand each other and building that trust so that we can bridge that gap, I think, is really, really important. Sam, I want to thank you for, for joining us on, on Hear Tell and, and being so open about your process and, and sharing the story with us. Thank you. Thank you, Andre. This episode featured music by Himalaya, The Glad Rags, Chocolate Billy, and The Big Mean Sound Machine. To learn more about HearTel and the Low Residency MFA program, visit bit.ly slash heartellpodcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at heartellpodcast on all platforms. HearTel will be back soon with another true story.